Good morning, brothers and sisters. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I'd like to say thank you very much to Joyce for leading us in worship today. And even though we are distant from one another, it is wonderful to know that we can enjoy a unity of spirit as we worship together, even in our homes. A unity of spirit as we praise our God for who he is, for what he has done, and for the fact that the tomb is empty. He has conquered death, he has overcome the grave, and we are the recipients of such a wonderful race in this. Well, soon we are celebrating Resurrection Sunday. Uh, we're going to go through a little bit of scripture, and we're also going to jump back and revisit a small passage within Colossians, mainly because it once again speaks so greatly to what we've received in our risen Lord. So I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then we'll go through the scriptures together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. For the opportunity we have now to look at your word we ask that you will open your pages to us that you will teach us and that you will encourage our hearts as we look at not only at what you have done for us but father just how great you are and the love you have bestowed upon us please help me to speak slowly and clearly and may your truths go out in power and challenge and change our lives in jesus name we pray amen if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke 24. We're going to touch on a few passages of Scripture there, and then we're going to jump back to our passage in Colossians and finish off something regarding the wonderful description of our victorious Lord. In Luke chapter 24, verse 1, we read this. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Now, if you recall, as Friday ended our Saviour had died. Joseph of Arimathea had asked Pilate for his body and took his body and buried him in a tomb that no one had laid in before. And while his tomb was there, the ladies had gone on the first day of the week to pay their respects. Now, there was somewhat of a excitement, somewhat of a buzz, I guess you could say, because at this particular time, there was hope. There was hope. Maybe some of the things he said could have happened. I mean, it was customary to pay one's respects to the dead, especially to one that was loved and honored. And, and so in going there, they'd gone to take aromatic herbs and some spices to anoint the body. So they were going there, actually, to anoint a dead body because in Mark 16 I believe the question was asked who's going to move the stone away so they were thinking about oh is, is, is we going to find the body there or not we'll go there prepared as if he he's still going to be there it's much like how we even today in cemeteries go and pay our respects by placing flowers or gifts to those whom we love but that same mentality, I think, was traveled all amongst the followers of Jesus on this specific day. The two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and they were sitting down once again, talking in their conversation, not only what had taken place, but also the things that they had seen and the things that they had been taught. They recalled to each other in verse 14, uh, with each, they talked to each other about everything that had happened at this time. The Lord Jesus came up alongside of them and asked them what things in verse 19. They didn't recognize who he was. And so he says, what things, Jesus said. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, 
powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. Now, these four words here. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. So for these two, there was an expectation, there was a hope that Jesus is who he claimed to be. The evidence was overwhelming with everything that they had witnessed, with everything that they were taught. Their confidence would have been soaring right up until Good Friday. Good Friday when they would have seen him arrested, when they would have seen him mocked, when they would have seen him scorched, when they would have seen him nailed to a cross. Maybe even then there was a glimmer of hope that he would come back and make a massive comeback. Maybe even then he was thinking that something could happen, could happen here. And nothing did. He passed away. Maybe right at that point of death, it was like, oh no, their hope died. Their confidence, gone. But it is interesting, because it's reflective even of myself, when faced with circumstances and obstacles and difficulties that we automatically forget everything that preceded those circumstances and obstacles and difficulties. We are a people of such, such a limited vision, bound to the physical nature of what surrounds us, and that we no longer have the ability to confidently and accurately see what God can do and how God can do it. And that's what we see here, the glimmers of hope that often stir within our hearts, are often coupled with the, the trepidation and the doubt of the, but what if? Or could it really be? See, such glimmers were stirring here in these two, even while Jesus was there. And they explained to Jesus, once again, not recognizing who he is. And they say, and what is more, in verse 21b, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had seen. They did not see Jesus. Could it be? Is this a possibility? I mean, were they just seeing things? Were they hoping? Was this wishful thinking? Once again, captured by the issues directly facing them, not thinking beyond what was directly in front of them, merely reacting to the situation and trying to make sense of things that are just beyond understanding. I mean, such attitudes, such attitudes I can identify with. I have been told that I can be a reactor. I respond to situations as opposed to being an initiator of things. We can, the problem is when you have such things and react, it can actually narrow, narrow your vision. And the problem is when your vision narrows, you fail to see the bigger picture that is taking place. I remember, I remember many, many years ago, I used as a youngster, I would play laser tag. And a laser tag, you have all the, the, the smoke and the walls and everything running around. And I still remember quite distinctly that because I was so focused on, on making a run for this place, I failed to recognize what it really was. There were two walls 
that were forming a, a corner like this and it had a funny shadow which made it look like a doorway and because I was so focused on that and I went running not looking with anything else and I went straight into a wall and often that happens with us we can be so focused on one thing that we fail to see the bigger picture and when you have this lack of vision you can fail to see what is really in front of you this lack of vision is what hindered these two from recognizing who Jesus was even though he was standing right next to them even Jesus himself when he spoke with them he said to them this verse 25 he said how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This would have to have been one of the greatest sermons we've never heard, but have been given a great insight into. Jesus, beginning in the Old Testament scripture, revealed himself throughout all the Old Testament. He would have revealed that he is the ultimate atonement for sin and for sin through a substitutionary death. I mean, you, you look at Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve covered themselves in fig leaves, but that was inadequate to cover their sin and offense against God. Rather, God had to provide a covering for them. And we read in the scriptures that God covered them in animal skins, which meant that an animal had to die in order to have their sin covered. Blood had to have been shed for them to receive an atonement, a covering for their sin. Adam and Eve are a wonderful picture of ourselves, how we often try to hide ourselves with our own fig leaves, whether it be through success professionally, whether it be through relationships, whether it be through wealth, whether it be through popularity, whether it be through fame. But all of these things are inadequate to cover our sin or to take that sin away no the covering must be provided by God and, and so Jesus looked at the story out of Adam and Eve and revealed himself through that story we read that he is the ultimate place of safety and security and judgment and if you look at Noah Noah who built an, an ark well in Genesis chapter 6 we read how God was going to judge the world with water and flood the earth and so Noah built an ark, and upon that ark, anybody who was upon it received deliverance from God's judgment. And if you recall, there was only one door, and when all the animals and when all the people of Noah's family were on there, we read that God closed the door. After 120 years, judgment came, and those that were on the ark were safe from God's judgment. And that's what Jesus said. You see, Jesus said, I am the ark. He says, I am that one door. John 10, he says, I am the door. Okay, we look at we look at how he is the great deliverer and redeemer from captivity and bondage. You look at the story of Moses and with the Passover and how God delivers them from Egypt by the killing of the firstborn. But those who had blood on the lentil and on the doorposts had the angel of death pass over and receive deliverance from such a thing. So we see that, and then from that deliverance, they are liberated from captivity. 
And Jesus says, that's who I am. I am the great liberator and deliverer from bondage. That he is the ultimate standard of holiness and righteousness. You look at God's law, the Ten Commandments, and you see how Jesus Christ fulfilled every aspect of the Ten Commandments because those Ten Commandments are an accurate portrayal of the purity and holiness and righteousness of God. That he is the ultimate rest even in the midst of turmoil. When you look at Joshua's taking of the promised land, in the taking of the promised land, there is still difficulty, yes, but God went before them. God provided for them. Jesus uncovers in the Old Testament everything that says concerning himself, not only his life and his death, but also his resurrection. And in that resurrection, what is made available to us. You see, today is that day. Resurrection Sunday is that day that solidifies everything Jesus taught, everything Jesus did, and everything Jesus promised as being 100% legitimate. That being 100% trustworthy. If you read in Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. Verse 3, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. It is a fact that in this act of his resurrection, Jesus is exactly who he claimed to be. It is the fuel that ignites the glimmer of hope into a raging fire of enthusiasm and joy. And you read this in Luke 24, 32, when the two on the road to Emmaus, after hearing this sermon expounded to them from the scriptures, says, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? The burning of God's truth that was speaking directly to their hearts. Jesus Christ's resurrection literally and spiritually and historically now gives weight and credibility to every claim that Jesus made during his earthly ministry. Every claim that he said, the ex for example, the exclusivity of his words. John 14, 6 says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You know why he can make such a claim as that? Because he rose from the dead. The reason why he can make such an exclusive claim is because he has the qualifications to make such claims. He rose from the dead and that gives this verse about exclusivity weight. The addressing of people's ideas about their acceptance by God. For example, a lot of people have a, different, a lot of different ideas. But in Luke 13, Jesus makes addresses this with some people who are trying to think of different reasons to justify why they want to follow or not follow him. Why they want to believe or not believe in who he is. We read this. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, 
you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. I remember the discussion of with one young man who told me 101 reasons as to why he chooses not to believe in Jesus Christ. And I recall him saying a number of different things. Well, I look at this and what's going on in the world. I look at that and what's going on in the world. I, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't want to believe this because you know, these people starving and, and those people starving or this happens there and this happens there. And so my question to him was simply, but what does that have to do with your responsibility to Jesus Christ? What does, what does that have to do with Jesus saying, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. What does it have got to do with that? And he couldn't really answer that. But that's, once again, he can make such a claim because he rose from the dead. That gave his, these facts, weight. The fact that he rose from the dead, there's the confirmation of, of one's current security. In John chapter 10, verse 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them from my hand. There is the promise of security as you are held within the hand of Christ. And because he rose from the dead, that gives that power. As well as security of his future promises in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house is, has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Once again, a future promise, knowing that he rose from the dead, gives that promise security, legitimacy. That makes it valid that he will be one who keeps his word. He is the ultimate promise keeper. Jesus' word after word, Jesus' teaching after teaching, Jesus' promise after promise are now guaranteed because the resurrection of Jesus Christ proved him as the guarantor, proved him as the one who can deliver on all of these words made, on all of the promises made, as the one who is the conqueror of death, as the one who is the overcomer of the grave, he presents before all humanity the opportunity to receive this blessing of grace, receive this gift of forgiveness, receive this salvation by believing in who Jesus is, God's one and only Son, born of a virgin, sin, sinless in being, crucified for my sin and risen from the grave. And trusting in this risen Savior for what he has done and for what he has made available to us. And it is this that I want to jump back into Colossians chapter 1. As we look at what he has made available to us, we read that this overcoming love, this love that overcame the grave, overcame the grave, has also given us the opportunity to be reconciled. The love of Jesus that reconciles me. Verse 20 says, through him, Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. With the forgiveness of our sin through faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. 
meaning that by the sacrifice Jesus made, by the blood Jesus shed, by the death Jesus gave, we can be reconciled to God because our debt has been paid and our sin dealt with at the cross. But in his resurrection, the debt has been cleared and the sin wiped away. Peace now resides through the blood of Jesus. Through the blood of Jesus. That's the reason why. Why? When that was paid, it can never be held to my account again. Now, in my time driving, I've I've broken the law a few times and a speed, whether it be speeding or I've I've run a red light. Let's say I was speeding and I had maybe a $250 fine. And then say young Jono. Young Jono's here, he he paid my fine for me. Now, the RTA or the New South Wales Police, they can no longer come up to me and say, you need to pay this fine. And I say, well, no, my fine's already been paid. I have the receipt. This young man here, John, he has paid my debt for me. And because it's been paid for, I cannot be held accountable for it anymore. It's been taken away. It's been dealt with. So they can sit there and harass me as much as they like, but that is no longer on my record. The ticket was paid in full. Now, peace resides through the blood of Jesus, and I had my ticket paid by the blood of Christ. It's gone. It is dealt with. It is paid in full, and because it's paid in full, it enables me and anyone else who trusts in Jesus to have peace with God. Now, just so you know, it isn't a peace to allow you to live how you like or a peace that enables you to live the way you want to live. Rather, it is a peace that gives you not only the capacity but the desire to live a life pleasing to God. That's what it says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, that you might walk worthy of the Lord in every manner pleasing to Him, living by His standards and not your own. I'm also told about this, not only this overcoming love of Jesus that reconciles me, this overcoming love of Jesus that delivers me. In verse 21, it says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Have you ever been left out of a team or you know, left outside of a joke or left outside of a, out of a conversation or a friendship circle or whatever? I mean, I have. I have. I have been the last person chosen in a team. I probably I've been alienated from others due to differences. It might be the way I look, maybe with some of the stupid decisions I've made. But but in this case, I am comforted by the fact that I am no longer alienated to God because of faith in Jesus. I have been delivered from my enmity toward God and my desire to live defiantly against Him too. That's been that's being set me free. I have, I, I want to live a life that pleases Him and that honors Him. And that can only be brought about by a transformation inwardly. So I've been, I've been reconciled to God. I've been delivered from myself and the evilness of my own heart. I'm also told that the overcoming love of Jesus liberates me. Liberates me. Verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. And that physical act of dying in my place and that spiritual act of, of substitutionary atonement, 
I am restored to being a friend with God through trust in Jesus. I'm now reconciled to him from an enemy to a friend, from a foreigner to a citizen, from an outcast to a child, from rejection to acceptance, from darkness to light, from death to life. Clothed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ that enables me to stand before God as a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And in that process of salvation, I am set free. I am liberated from my sin without blemish and I am free from accusation. Free from accusation. I, I like that word in the Bible. I am justified. That word justified means that I am declared righteous. It's a, it's a legal term. Let, let's say, for example, using John again, once again as an example, let's say he doesn't pay my bill and I have to go to court um, and I have to pay my fine or be, because I haven't paid the fine, I have to go to court and suffer the consequences for that. Now I tell them the reason why I got the fine, why I was speeding. It was some, let's say it was some noble cause that I was saving somebody's life or whatever it might be. You know, someone's giving birth, I'm helping, whatever it was. Okay, so I explained to the judge as to the situation that was going on and, and he actually says, okay, I'm going to give you an exemption. You are now set free. You are declared innocent. Once the law, once the judge declares that I am innocent, I am free to go and I can never be held accountable for that offense anymore. And it doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what someone else thinks. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter when, when someone starts whispering, oh, yeah, yeah, but you did this, this, and this. Why? Because I am now free from accusation. Because the, the judge has declared me righteous, has declared me innocent. That same thing has taken place here through the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. I am now justified before God. And the sin and the offenses and the guilt that I had, that he paid for on my behalf, I can no longer be held accountable for. I am declared righteous. Now, look, I know. I know for a fact that I'm not perfect. I know for a fact that you're not perfect. And I know you know for a fact that I'm not perfect either. But the reality is this, that if I am justified in Christ, it doesn't matter what somebody else says. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what the enemy whispers into your ear. The fact of the matter is that in Christ, we have been made free from accusation. We have been washed in the blood. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ enables that to be carried out in each of our lives as well. Now, just because we are, that doesn't mean we can live how we want, once again. But it's a reality that cannot change. We have been declared righteous and free from, accus from accusation, liberated from sin and without blemish in Christ. And lastly, the overcoming love of Jesus. That, so the overcoming love of Jesus that not only reconciles, the overcoming love of Jesus that, that delivers, the overcoming love of Jesus that, that liberates, and the overcoming love of Jesus that establishes me. Verse 23, it says, If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel there is a great thought that stems from this passage that not only encourages us but also confronts us about how we are to live there are 
some amazing realities that we've only skimmed over regarding what happens to us when we are, when we are confronted with the beauty of Jesus Christ, with the, the greatness of his love and the scope of his sacrifice, as well as the blessing of his acceptance. But look, look that with, with the reconciliation, with the deliverance, with the, the liberation, with the establishment, the establishment of ourselves in the way we live as followers of Jesus Christ. It begins with our response and our continuation of the gospel. Being a Christian is not about making a decision. It is not about praying a prayer or even going to a church. Being a Christian is about coming to know Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior, and as friend. And to walk in accordance with his heart, with his values, and with his word. And that we conduct ourselves in accordance to that. That's your desire to do so now. That's what it means to be established. Even for for those of you who have been married for a number of years now, you you seek to to conduct yourself in a way that honors your spouse. You don't make a decision and then go and do what you want. You, You make a decision and then the evidence of that decision is reflected Every day after that, the reality of the decision is evidenced every day after that. And so it's the continuation in the gospel that has transformed our lives that is evidence that we've truly come to know that gospel. That's what it means to be established in it. As a child of God in Christ, in response to the gospel, I'm called to live in accordance to his word and to his calling. It's the reason why at the end of verse 23, Paul closes the verse in the following way. He says this, This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven of which I, Paul, have become a servant. He saw himself as a servant of the gospel that transformed his life, as a servant of the good news of Jesus Christ, as a servant of Jesus Christ himself. It was a willing service to a beautiful savior. You see, the joy of today is that we serve a risen savior. The tomb is empty. Jesus Christ lives. His death was necessary in order for us to be forgiven, but his resurrection is just as necessary for us to have everlasting life. It is the power of his resurrection we are established in the gospel. It is the We are liberated from sin's power over us. We are delivered from ourselves. We are reconciled to God. Praise God that our faith is not in vain. Praise God that we have a legitimate hope. Praise God that our Savior lives. This is what today is about. And this is why We are to celebrate communion even again today to remind us, yes, he gave his blood and he gave his body for us to be reminded continually of the greatness of his love and the extent of his sacrifice. But it's also a commemoration for what we're going to partake of in the future because our Savior lives. He lives And he too longs for the time where we will share in this meal together in his presence. 
So with that, if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we're going to work our way through that passage one more time. And, and brothers and sisters, I would encourage you once again to merely meditate and dwell upon the fact of today and what today has given us in our Saviour Jesus Christ. So starting at verse 23, we read, For I received from the Lord that I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, with one spirit, let's take the bread. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the body that was broken for us. Thank you, you humbled yourself to your Father's will. Thank you that in the brokenness of your body, you enabled us to avoid the judgment for our sin. Thank you for willingly giving yourself in Jesus' name. And carrying on reading, verse 25, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the cup. Father, we thank you for the blood that was shed. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is no remission for our sin. We thank you so much that you willingly gave your body and shed your blood in order to cleanse us and pay the price for our wrong, for our offense, for our sin. And you took all of that to the grave with you. Thank you for such a wonderful, wonderful gift of life through your death. In Jesus' name. Just reading that final verse. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a proclamation of the fact that our risen Savior is coming back. That this and what we have celebrated now points to the future when we celebrate it together. It is until he comes. Oh, the blessing of knowing that our God lives. That our Lord is not only dwells within, but he is with us every moment of every day. Let us pray, and then I'll make a few announcements after that. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that you are a risen Savior. That in your death we received forgiveness. In your death we received remission. In your death you took it away. And now through your life we too will live also. In your life we have been made new. In your life our, our destiny has been secured. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for your greatness, for your majesty, and for the love you bestowed upon us who are so undeserving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, that is our Easter weekend. Enjoy the rest of your time together. Thank you so, so much for the blessing of being able to come into your home once again and to share this time with you. I pray that you will encourage each other, not even just today, but for the rest, each, each day that goes by, call somebody, pray for somebody, talk to somebody, interact with somebody. This is a wonderful opportunity to celebrate the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and the love 
that has been bestowed upon us. Now I'm going to just close in prayer and uh, if we'll probably have a um, straight after this a Zoom meeting for fellowship. Uh, John is going to send out a link as well if he has not sent it out already and it's just to sit down and talk and fellowship to catch up. Um, I would encourage you to all come along as well because it'll be a great blessing to just sit down and talk and, and have a bit of a chat about things as well. So with that, brothers and sisters, let me pray and then we'll call it a day. Father, we thank you so much once again for the blessing of Easter. Thank you that we get to celebrate this together as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask for you to dismiss us now as we look to the future and desire that even in this circumstance, even in this situation, know that you, our risen Savior, have everything in control. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, have a great day. See you at the Zoom meeting. Throne of him.